Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello everyone, I'm Jess Mills and welcome to Human Podcast. A place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. Each week, I'm in conversation with a celebrated trailblazer or unsung hero whose awe-inspiring personal story demonstrates the breathtaking things that human beings are capable of overcoming and achieving. Human has been created to make these stories more seen, more heard, and more celebrated. In this first series, we're exploring extraordinary personal stories of resilience and trying to understand how it enables us to overcome the most impossible experiences. Every story of greatness holds the messiness and fragility of living too, and so often our pain is our greatest teacher. So if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place, join us and let your heart be uplifted by the fire of the human spirit. So this week on Human, we are honoured, and I truly mean this, to have my dear, dear friend Zalasht Halamzai with us. So Zalasht was born and raised in Kabul in Afghanistan till she and her family were forced to leave as refugees in the early 1990s. She then travelled with her mother, her father and her four young siblings along the Trans-Siberian Railway for four years until they arrived in the UK when she was 15. Zalasht has spent her whole adult life creating access to education for young, traumatised children from conflict zones all over the world and her early childhood programme, Beitna, has just been cited by the UN as a benchmark of global best practice. And just to top it off, she was recently named an Obama Fellow for her outstanding leadership. Now, as ever, God, this resume of outstandingness really is just the tip of the iceberg with this person I have in front of me and I know there are a lifetime of stories that um, we are going to hear about today that existed before before this so Zalasht hello welcome and please if you would be happy to just just take us back to where you would say your story began. Like every human, my story begins in a family, you know, and in a, a kind of an extended family, in a home where, um, you know, I was surrounded by my siblings. I'm the eldest of five children, and cousins, and my grandmother, and we had a beautiful garden. And and where was this? Where was home? So all of this kind of 
ordinary world was in the middle of an extraordinary situation in Kabul uh, and Afghanistan in the 80s where, you know, our home was in the middle of an arena where superpowers were fighting, um, you know, with each other and what was the Cold War. And so as a child, I had both this you know, this ordinary experience of family life and being, you know, with my siblings and making up games and all of that and also being in the middle of a war, in the middle of a conflict and experiencing, you know, every day some sort of crisis, um, either kind of inadvertently through, you know, other people. So, you know, if you if you're living through a conflict, there's always something happening to someone that you know. Mm-hmm. And so some days it would be the stories that we'd hear of people that had were part of our family or family friends that had been injured or killed or were missing or um and some days it was much more closer to home, you know. Um And does our, that ever normalize? No. I think people carry on. I, I think a lot of people sort of think like what what happens when people through live through war? You still do ordinary things. You get up and have breakfast and, you know, wash yourself and do all of these things as much as you can. So there is that ordinary part of it. But the other stuff, the the violence and the insecurity and the kind of the sense of am I going to live till the you know, to the end of this day? that doesn't normalize because, you know, your body just, conti- you know, it's your body keeps reminding you to of the urgency of the insecurity um, all the time. And so that's, you know, that's where it began. That's where my story began. And, and, and I, I think back a lot to my childhood because I almost feel like I have two completely separate lives, um, the life that I led within this, home which is really ordinary and you know I was a bookish weird girl that just wanted to kind of I was very in my imagination and wanted to explore all these different things and I got really obsessed with history of Central Asia when I was like seven so there's that part and then the other part which is my life was being directly impacted and driven by this massive thing in the world, which was the the conflict between U.S. and USSR and what was happening on a global arena that was impacting this family in, mm. in Kabul. And we had absolutely no control over it or any agency in it. You know, we didn't, nothing that was happening in Kabul was being decided by the Afghan people. It was, it was a much bigger um story in the world and so um your family who, who what makes up your family so uh mum and dad who are both extraordinary people um and then i the eldest of five so i have three brothers and a sister and you know we we all sort of grew up so they they the people that i've known my whole life because my as when when I was 11, things became so difficult in Afghanistan that my family decided to leave, and it was an incredibly difficult decision for them to make. Mm-hmm. My dad did not want to leave. He was almost waiting to, you know, he kept sort of believing that peace would come and that we just needed to hold stead, 
you know, and, and just kind of wait it out. And then it got to the point where we couldn't. There was literally militias on our street. And um, so we decided to leave. And then um, we spent four years in transit trying to work out what to do, what to do next. Um, and so my siblings are the only group of people and my parents that I've known my whole life um, because as we moved from one country to another and then you know settling down in the UK when I was 15 um, you you know you meet people but they don't share all of your history and sometimes when we came to the UK it's not just history it's also culture and identity and language and all of that so my siblings are a very big part of the resilience that I have because mm. they're the people that share all of my history and mm. they know everything from the beginning and there's very little explanation that I need to do with them um, when I speak because they know where I'm coming from. So that's a, that's a, that family unit has been an incredibly um, important part of my life. Is this the word that you used back there? You said transit. Mm. I just wonder a little bit more about about that word transit. What does transit mean in the context of that story of your story? I think another way of describing it is limbo. It's mm. it's all purgatory. It's you know being in the state where you can't go back home because things are so terrible, but you also don't know where your next home could be. You know, um, and I think there's an interesting thing that happens to people that are displaced and and that you know you can't be at home because it's not safe, but psychologically part of you still thinks home of home as the safest place, right? Mm. So uh, when we were leaving, we left everything that we really cared about at home because we thought, okay, we don't know where we're going to end up, so let's keep the photographs. And, mm. you know, my mom had these collections of diaries and things like that, so she left those at home because that was the safest place. So you're in this kind of limbo state and you don't know what's coming next. And then there's a practical part, part of that, which is, you know, where do I actually go next to live, to have a livelihood, to, you know, to go to school and all of these different things. And that's a really difficult thing to decide. And for my, for my parents, they were just hoping that at some point in those four years when we were in transit that things would change and mm. we could just go back home. So where did where did this where did the transit take you for so you left Kabul when you were eleven and then and then where did you So go? the first entry point to this other world was Uzbekistan, which is a weird and wonderful place. And so as a child I remember sort of um crossing the bridge from northern Afghanistan into Uzbekistan and and the, you know, there was an immediate kind of change um, because they had electricity. <laughs> so we arrived there and we were like, oh, my God, <laughs> they have electricity all the time. <laughs> and so there was just like the whole world changed all of a sudden. Um, Afghanistan had been literally in darkness for um, a few years. And... And then we just sort of made our way west, you know, and from one town to another. We ended. We went to Tashkent, and then to um, Russia, like different cities in Russia. Um, and then we finally ended up in Kiev. And I think my parents had been so fatigued 
from traveling f- with five children and my youngest brother and what was What were the ages of your siblings at that point? So I was 11 when we left and my youngest was I think 4. So it's well, you know a range of And what would travel look like at that point? I mean were you by train, trains, by, by trains. Yeah, it was mostly trains, and we spent so much time on the train that when we finally settled in Kiev, I couldn't sleep for a while because I could only sleep if I could hear the the sound of the train and the moving of the train, and then I had to sort of get out of that state and kind of get used to being on the ground again, literally ground myself again because it had we'd been moving for so long. And how how were your parents by this point? would you say so stressed I mean I can't remember a moment in all of those years where I looked at my mother and didn't see someone who was just struggling Mm. you know really struggling um struggling to be you know present to be to 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 have hope, you know, to, to have all of the things that kind of ground you because, and for very good reasons, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it wasn't just a kind of an imagined thing. She'd gone through this, you know, from the moment she started having children, she feared that one of them might die because she had children in the middle of this war. And that fear, I think, really is, you're a mom, so you know, you know, how how protective you feel over your children Mm -hmm. and I think for her that was just such an incredibly difficult to deal with and I think it's something that still follows her to this day you know Mm -hmm. she just that is her worst fear to um and my dad was just I think he was just trying his hardest so that we would survive and have you know a plate of food on the table every day and um, and keep our imagination al- alive. You know, he would sort of come home after working, you know, in the market all day. And he, you know, he'd throw a book or he'd, you know, he'd say like, you know, let's sit down and discuss Ingalls <laughs> <laughs> you know, and why socialism is the best system, of, you know, government. <laughs> and so it was this this weird kind of dichotomy between, you know, the fact that. He worked in the market as and sold whatever we could to for us to survive and have a meal. And on the other hand, there was just this all this other stuff going on in our home, which was about like, well, why are we in this situation? And how does the world fit into this? And um Could you can you kind of recall what you feel are the really defining sort of feelings you had? from that time is there an overriding feeling that you would say define that time for you sadness I was really sad um, because when we left my grandmother who had been sort of my primary caretaker up until that point because we lived in this extended family and my mom had a full-time job, and so I was extremely close to her. Mm. And she was sort of the, you know, I think when I think about resilience, the the genesis of my resilience was my grandmother, who right. was just this incredible um, matriarch who just was, you know, 
was as strong as she was empathetic. And um, and so leaving her behind was one of, it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, And knowing, I kind of, you know, I remember sort of the morning where, um, when we were leaving, and I kept sort of trying to make her promise me that we'd see each other again. And she and her very kind of, she's she, she an incredibly kind of, she's an amazing storyteller. She, the way that she was responding to me wasn't a yes or a no. It was just this sort of, we will, but, you know, maybe in a different world. Or, you know, it was something, she would say something like that. And I just remember feeling like, we're not going to see each other. Mm. That's what she's telling me. And we didn't. That was the last time I ever saw her. I'm really interested in this thing that you just said about the genesis of your resilience and you identifying your grandmother in that way. Um, Often with people that, you know, go on in their adult lives to, or actually throughout their childhood as well, to demonstrate a kind of profound sense of resilience, there's normally or often someone in their early life who has modelled resilience to them. But what you say about your grandmother there is interesting because was it that she modelled resilience or was it that she made you feel safe? And is it the safety that she made you feel that enabled the resilience? I'm just interested in, in that. I, I think for me it was the safety. Mm. And I think from the work that we do with young children in Greece, that's what we see, you know, that attachment to someone who quite literally sometimes acts as a shield to the what's going on around you and can contain that. Um, young children take their cues from the adults around them. And so if someone, if you have someone in your life that can, you know, even because they're with you and they carry you through this and they show you love and validation and can comfort you when you need it, that enables children to go through that sort of stressful situation and insecurity and even sometimes very horrific stuff and come out on the other side. Mm. Um, What happens to a lot of communities that are going through violence or extreme poverty or, you know, any of the kind of things that um, put stress on families is that the parents aren't able to do that because they're literally trying to survive or they have five jobs and they don't, you know, they're trying to put food on the table Mm -hmm. and they can't take the time that's necessary to make their children feel, feel that way. Um, and so I think for me, my grandmother was the, the the space where, you know, she created the space where I felt safe, where I felt nurtured, where I felt loved. And, you know, um, she would she was an amazing storyteller. And so I said to her, OK, you, you tell stories. She was illiterate, but she was amazing in, in, in how she told stories. She could recite poems about absolutely everything, literally anything. You'd be like... You know, I want more garlic in, in the in the dish that I'm cooking. And she'd tell you a poem about garlic. You know, that's how <laughs> prolific she was. So I said to her, oh, but I can write. So you tell me the stories and I'll write them down and then I'll be the writer. <laughs> um, and she would, you know, 
the patience in those moments because she would then sit with me and tell me stories. And I, in my kind of seven, eight, nine years old, would try and write them down. Mm. And it was those, in those kind of moments where I didn't feel like I was living inside a war. I felt her love and I felt what I was learning, you know, from her. And it, it, it seems from what you say that there is a profound legacy of that kind of containment for a child and how it enables a child to endure what sounds like, from what you've said, extreme sense of instability um, for, for many years after that. Um, I'm interested in this concept of resilience being something that, you know, does it just enable us to survive or does it enable us to thrive? And I think the two are very, very different. Um, does survival come at the expense of thriving? And I know this is something that you've done a lot of thinking mm. about. You know, are we resilience can't just be measured by your physical, the fact that you are still standing on two feet. It has to be about more than that. Um I'd just love to know your kind of thoughts on this. I think resilience means so many different things to so many different people. And I think you have to, you know, look at look at it from different perspectives. And for me, it's looking at the whole person. Um, and I think it's I think that it would be really good to to almost have another conversation about what resilience is because we have enough scientific data and around what insecurity and trauma does to people, particularly in early childhood, to redefine what resilience is. Um, because what we know is that if you have chronic insecurity, toxic stress, and trauma in your childhood that impacts you in very intricate and profound ways. And there are things that you can do to to support that, but it it, it follows you. It follows you in in it might not be in like you said, you know, you might be standing on your own two feet, you might have a job, but it might impact the way that you relate to people or it might impact your income, you know, how much, how you access the labor market and what you're able to do. And so the, the, the impact of the kind of insecurity that I'm describing can be so profound and so multidimensional. And I think that you can, so when we talk about resilience, we need to take the whole picture into account and, and think about what is the other side of resilience um, and, and how do you enable it? I think that we do have an innate sense of resilience, but it, it does need to be enabled, you know? You do need to have people in your life that believe in you, love you, f make you feel safe and secure. Um, you do need communities, you know? You need communities around to... Um, to, to provide that sense of safety again. And so a lot of the work that we do in Greece is all around that, is how do you help parents feel less stressed so that they can make their children feel safe? How do you help them connect to other families so that they create that community and so that children feel that they're 
not on their own and that their parents are not on their own. Just tell us a little bit more about the, the families and the, the children that you're working with in, in Greece and about your work there. So uh, we mostly primarily work with Syrian refugees, um, There's but there's also a population of Afghans and Iraqis and, and Greece and, and then you know, tiny numbers of other countries. But so these are re- refugee communities. These yeah, are refugee communities. Displaced by war from war, yeah. Exactly. So they've all been through conflict. And in case of Afghanistan, it's a conflict that's been going on for 40 years. So the impact on children, it's not just the... In the is the is not just the impact of their lifetime it's the intergenerational trauma that they're carrying as well because their parents probably would have been born and brought up during the war as well life expectancy in afghanistan is still very low i think it's still under 50 so mm-hmm. it's you know very difficult to find people that have um that are older, you know, so everyone that we work with have been mostly born and brought up during the war. Um, And then for Syrian children that we work with, because we work with zero to eight, they would have also been conceived and born during the war. Um, And so that means that the the impact on their mental and physical health can be enormous, having experienced, you know, in so many different experiences of violence, but then all the kind of insecurity that they experience and when they arrive in camps, let's say in Turkey, and they don't know what to do and how, you know, there's not enough services, and then they decide that this is so difficult that they're going to take their families through this incredibly dangerous journey to try and seek safety elsewhere, and then they arrive in Greece, and that's still kind of not that, you know, the you know from the news reports what's going on on Lesbos and Moria and how the circumstances in which left refugees are, 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 are living in. So that's the context of that our work. That is criminally underreported yeah. as well. It's, yeah. it's, 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 everyone thinks the crisis is over. It's, it's not over. It's happening. There's 14,000 people, women and children and families living in Moria. Yeah, right now. for a yeah. camp that has the capacity, I think, for just a few thousand. Yeah. So. Um, so our work with them is to try and address what they're going through by having interventions that addresses trauma, addresses toxic stress. And what we do is to try and kind of create spaces where they can come, feel safe, have access to all the things that children need to have access to to learn. So play, other children, a trained facilitator that can, you know, really contain what's happening in the room because often we get children that have seen people drown or you know have seen their home being destroyed so they bring a lot of emotion and history with them into the spaces so we create spaces where they can feel safe where they can feel joy again where they can play and they can start imagining a different kind of life you Mm. know Um, I think trauma can can kind of block you from imagining a future that's safe and stable and with love, right? And so we we try and kind of help them imagine that again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So really the work, the work that you're, you're doing um, through Baitner in, in Greece and through the Refugee Children Initiative is there to help to kind of normalise childhood for these children and to help reduce the impact of toxic stress so they can have, you know, so, so there isn't a lifelong um, legacy of that trauma for those children. Exactly right. Um, and... It's, we spoke about this before, um, but this correlates very interestingly to the work that's being done in the States, right, that um, Nadine Burke-Harris talks a lot about in terms of the ACEs. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So th- when when we were thinking, um, when we were designing Baitna as an intervention for young children, the ACE study played uh, a pretty significant role because the the study, it's, I think it's one of the longest longitudinal studies that's been done on adverse childhood experiences. And it's been groundbreaking because it shows the impact of traumatic, stressful early experiences um, with health outcomes. So it's correlation to cancer, to heart disease, to diabetes. Um, and it shows how it is lifelong. So if there are no interventions for children who are feeling unsafe day in and day out in their homes or in a refugee camp, that the, the, the chemicals that are going around their body literally becomes toxic. And, and then over time, that can impact not just your mental health and your ability to learn and all that kind of other that stuff but it affects your body it you you can um you develop 
different types of diseases and you you know I think that the kind of the the statistic and I don't remember but how likely you are to commit suicide just sort of shoots up so it's kind of like a prevention tool as well right it's a way of trying to identify children that are highly vulnerable depending on the amount of basis that they score yeah, yeah. And, and you did the questionnaire I did the questionnaire and I think if you do it as, as an adult, it's probably a, a little more scarier because you. I mean, you can you can always um, improve your, um, you know, your resilience and, and your capacity to deal with these things. So it's it's never too late. But at the same time, do you think it, you can? I think you have to want to, <laughs> but and yeah. you have to have the you have to have access to the ways that. Um, enable resilience, which for a lot of people, for example, living in very poor communities, living in refugee camps, living in war, they simply cannot, you know, Mm. they simply cannot go into spaces that are safe or do all the things that you need to do in order to have that, you know. I mean, externally, um, I mean, your story is one that demonstrates a profound resilience. Would you say... That was true. I think what happens with people, with you know, with sort of groups like refugees is that people hold up a few examples or, you know, people have survived it. And they say, look, this is what, you know, resilience is there because these people have, right? And I am for sure an incredibly lucky and privileged person to both have survived what... I did, but also then to have a life where I am autonomous and agent and have choices, you know, because for a a woman that was born in Afghanistan, that's a very unlikely outcome. So I'm incredibly, incredibly privileged. But this has been both a huge struggle, you know, every step is something that you have to overcome. But also, I've had so much support to be able to do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always had people that believed in in me and my capacity to overcome. I had people that would sit with me and try, you know, teach me English, even if I was just be, you know, really angry or grumpy or, you know, all the things that children are, because they've, you know, they're going through something. Um, and, you know, when I arrived in this country, for example, I had an incredible uh, English as a second language teacher who would, you know, I would, I was just such difficult teenager because I couldn't speak English, so I couldn't communicate what I needed. And, and I'd just been through this really weird 15 years. And she sat day in and day out with me, tolerating the and and not just tolerating but just being so patient and loving and kind about what I was bringing into her room Mm. and it's from her all the way to where I am now there have been people that have held me made me feel secure made me feel safe believed in my capacity and provided me with resources I needed to do this and I think that that's the, sort of the other part of the story of resilience that I really want to tell because I did not arrive where I am by myself or without a great deal of support. And I think that's what needs to be 
told more often mm. and so that we can formalize structures that can do that for people who are going through really difficult experiences yeah. and make sure that we it's not just the ch- left to chance yeah which really correlates with what um, Nadine Burke-Harris is saying about how you actually should intervene to enable, to, to give children and their families the tools to nurture resilience where those structures aren't present as a kind of, almost like as a, as a health kind of, um, as like a pre- prevention scheme, as a way of trying to prevent, you know, the next generation of, of 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 traumatized or damaged or disadvantaged children growing up to um, bear the legacy of that experience. Exactly, yeah. I think the work that she's doing is absolutely revolutionary because yeah. um, I think there about she was appointed as a Surgeon General of California. Mm. It's a position that was created the for TED her. Talk's amazing. Yeah. I mean, anyone listening to this, I really recommend you look that up. But one of the things that she's trying to do is to screen every child for ACEs so that they can come up with interventions. And it's an incredibly, it's, it's, I mean, it's a cost effective because if you intervene with, with these kind of things at a young age, you always save money. So for early childhood interventions, I think for every dollar that you spend, you save 10 mm. in, in the long run because you people are, are less likely to get sick. They're less likely to go to prison. They're more likely to stay in relationships. They're more likely to be at work. So in general, you're really just looking after the health of society. It's a very interesting space, isn't it? This space between you know, science and particularly neuroscience and and uh, more kind of psychotherapeutic theory, you can say. And it's this kind of very interesting convergence between the two and the fact that, you know, what Nadine's work is doing is demonstrating how, you know, the experiences that you have don't just, don't just bear emotionally, but they actually have a, an imprint on the way that your children's minds and their bodies function. You know, and I think that that is really revolutionary. It's taking a completely different kind of holistic, um, holistic view at, at something which has possibly only been seen as like a social issue, when actually it's it's much bigger than that. It's it's it it has profound health impacts. As exactly. Well. Yeah. And I and I think people are much more. I I think what the ACE study did is kind of engage people that would normally not be engaged with these issues because mm. it moved it away from, you know deprived communities or people communities under stress or feeling bad to know they're getting cancer they're getting heart disease they're getting diabetes and that is something that is not just on them it's also on us you know Mm. to to deal with and that I think it's sad that it has to be you know that we have to use these kind of different ways of bringing attention to suffering but for me it's you know if that's the way if if cancer is if, if, if showing that people get cancer is a way of persuading the rest of society to take care of the people that, that, that are in need, then so be it, you know. Just to kind of go back to your story, would you say your experience of your own resilience was one that you felt had enabled you to survive or to thrive? That's such a difficult question. Mm. I think the way that I remember sort of my childhood and adolescence is as 
I was surviving. You know, I was trying to get up every morning and breathe. And situations where I just felt like I couldn't, you know. And then at some point, and I think it just sort of clicked, I started feeling, and, and it was very much with what I could imagine my life to be. Um, at one point, and again, it was because people, I got a lot of support to help me overcome those things. I, um, something clicked and I could suddenly imagine a different life. Mm -hmm. And I could imagine um, being agent um, because one of the things that you lose in this kind of situation, you lose a sense of control. And mm -hmm. for children, that's incredibly important to feel that someone's in control somewhere, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, even if there's chaos, you believe that mom is in control, she knows what's happening, and things start to get really kind of chaotic and shaky when you realize that no one's in control. Mm -hmm. And so I spent quite a lot of my life feeling not in control. And there was a point where I started imagining that I could be in control. Um, and that part of that meant that I really had to throw myself into studying and working and all of that. And the other part of it was that I had to recognize that I needed to heal. I needed to mm -hmm. put the time and the energy that's necessary to process what I'd been through. And I think that's when... And I think that's a story that carries on for people for the rest of their lives. I don't think I will ever kind of, you know, my experiences have made me who I am and they will play a role in my life for the rest of my life. And it's about processing, managing, but also seeing it as a, what you said, as a source of strength as well. Mm -hmm. Because now I sort of think, wow, I could, you know, I, I, I sort of find myself in situations where I'm much more comfortable with uncertainty and chaos and things like that where people have, you know, and other people are not. And I think, okay, well, this is a skill that I learned because, you know, I grew up in the place that I did. And I can, you know, you, I feel like I could, you could drop me anywhere in the world and I'd figure out a way of being there. There is clearly a very interesting tension between the experience that you've had in your life and the thing that you have now spent your whole adult li adult life um, working to create for children who could have been like you. Mm -hmm. Just tell me a little bit more about that and what you think is in that. You know, when when I was a teenager, I thought, you know, what can I do to stop war? What can I do to um, stop this, the kind of cruelty that I experienced? And my first instinct was, you know, I should be a, a journalist and tell people about it. And then I went through many different kind of iterations of what I should do. And then what I realized is actually the best thing you can do is make sure that the next generation of people who are going through this are able to move away from conflict or are able to build peace and relate to each other and have the tools they need to rebuild a community and a society. And I think the best way to do that is to help children feel safe, to help them learn, to help them relate to other people and to help them feel that they can overcome it, that mm -hmm. they can be 
that there is a different type of world as well. You know, we live in a world where there's so many bad things are happening, but there are pockets where there is not. And there are, there's empathy, there's joy, there's hope. And we as human beings have discovered, have created extraordinary things. And I think that's the best way to prevent conflict. That's the best way that you can stop wars from happening is to, and it sounds really naff, but it's actually true. You mm -hmm. need to help people learn compassion, love, and empathy. And then it's a lot harder to, to kill and be cruel and be horrible. Um, so I thought that's the best thing I can do um, to, to prevent atrocities from happening. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> and you're doing it. Um, okay, so one last question. If there's one person in the world alive or past that you would want to be proud of you, who would that be? My grandmother, 100%. And I think about it, actually. There are moments where, you know, something happens and people tell me something that's, you know, incredibly kind about what I'm doing or who I am. And I always think... Does she think that? Would she think that? You know, and I think she would. And I think What's you know. Your grandmother's name? <laughs> Zulaikha. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah. Lastly, if we could ask you to dedicate a song to your story, what would that be? And tell us a little bit about why. Um. So I I don't know how to pronounce the song names, so, <laughs> <laughs> but I know I know is it by. It's um it's uh, Stereo Lab and I think what the I think the way that you pronounce it is Le Boob Oscillateur. Is that how you pronounce it? That sounds, sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't. It, the song I think is it's in French and I, it's it's about the moon. But I really love. Um, the sort of the joyfulness of it. Mm. Um, and I think that when I think about my life and I think about how I, you know, I was going to Afghanistan a few years ago and I told my sister before I got on the plane, look, if I'm killed, play the song <laughs> at a party. And I think the reason I wanted to, to like, I, it's just a joyful song. And I think it's about, you know, finding that place in you that makes you get up and dance in the middle of really horrible stuff and I think that's really important to keep no matter where you are so that's the song Dalash thank you so much for being a guest of Love and Human thank you we love you we love you too la lune <laughs>
Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to rate, review and subscribe to us on your podcast app, then please do. And you know the score. Five stars, please. If you'd like to come and say hello on Instagram, then you can find me and all things human podcast related at This Is Jess Mills. This podcast was created and hosted by me, Jess Mills, with creative co-production by Bonnie Tyvon and produced by Joel Porter at dot dot dot. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.